Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Thousands of years of human history have given us a multitude of experiences of societies that have seen progress of one sort or, or another, that have endured barbarity, that have, that have failed to reach prosperity, and that have achieved sustained improvements in human welfare. We have seen how, uh, for example, the Soviet Union achieved periods of high growth. Uh, we've seen notable differences uh, in productivity among tribes that are living in seemingly uh, identical conditions. Uh, we've seen the rise and decline of empires. We've seen how Western Europe escaped from mass poverty during the Industrial Revolution. We've seen Argentina's fall from first world to the third world, the spread of democracy and market reforms, and the seeming success of authoritarian regimes that have partially opened up their economies. All of this, of course, has led to competing theories of, uh, about the true causes of prosperity, and this debate has been going on for hundreds of years. But I think it's fair to say that uh, there is more of a consensus today uh, as compared, say, to 30 years ago about the need for market reforms, market policies and institutions, and the need for accountable democratic government that places limits on the power of the state. That consensus, however, does not explain why certain societies have evolved in the way they have or why so many have had so much difficulty achieving prosperity. We may broadly know what policies create growth, but that knowledge doesn't tell us how to successfully implement uh, change. Knowing which reforms uh, work tells you little about the chances of the success of, of reforms in different countries or whether they will be applied successfully or indeed uh, tell you about how to do so. Uh, in economic development, there is no recipe for getting from point A to point B. In their new book, Why Nations Fail, uh, Daron Asimoglu and his co-author, James Robinson, do not provide a recipe uh, for reforms, but they make a significant contribution as to why nations perform as they do. Their insights uh, will be useful to both scholars and practitioners, I, and I have no doubt that the book will quickly become a, a reference work in the field. In it, uh, the authors draw from a rich uh, variety of examples around the world to propound their main claim. Institutions and not other factors explain why nations succeed or fail. And as with any substantial work, they give us a lot to chew on and a lot to debate about, even among like-minded scholars. So I'm delighted to, to, and honored to have uh, Professor Asimoglu with us today uh, to summarize his book. He is the Elizabeth and James Killian Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the winner of the 2005 uh, John Bates Clark Medal. And he is among the 10 most cited economists in the world. Over the past uh, 15 or so years, he has written and co-authored numerous seminal uh, papers on economic history and the role of institutions in long-run uh, growth. He is a member of the Economic Growth Program of the Canadian Institute of Advanced Research, and he is affiliated with a number of other uh, organizations, including the National Bureau of Economic Research. I'm pleased uh, to welcome Professor Esimoglu. Thank you very much, Ian, and thanks for inviting me and organizing this event and for the nice introduction that actually lays out the scene for what I'm going to talk about. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here, uh, and uh, I'm going to talk about uh, our book, uh, the book that I have written with uh, James Robinson. It's a uh, uh, outcome of uh, over 17 years of research, uh, almost 18 years of research that James and I have done, and 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 it's our effort to make this uh, more broadly uh, accessible and also develop a more holistic framework for thinking about such problems. The problems that we're uh, addressing, as, uh, as as Ian has uh, has mentioned, is uh, 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 are about the huge differences in income 
per capita that exist uh, around the world today. Uh, these gaps in prosperity are uh, much wider than those that motivated Adam Smith to write The Wealth of Nations, which, of course, uh, is where the modern uh, discipline of economics starts. And, uh, you know, when Adam Smith was writing, uh, the gap between the richest and the poorest nation was about uh, four or five-fold. Today, that number is over 40-fold. Uh, there are many theories about why there are such huge differences in prosperity. Uh, if you turn to the popular media or even some uh, respectable journals such as Science or Nature, every now and then you'll see uh, articles uh, arguing that it is such things as climate, soil quality, disease environment that accounts for why some nations are poor or some nations are rich. Uh, but actually, when you look at uh, the evidence, uh, geographic factors don't seem to be so important. The same countries that were uh, that are very rich today uh, were once much poorer than others that uh, at, uh, with the same soil quality that uh, that hasn't changed or with the same geographic factors. Even more popular than such geography-based explanations, uh, you would uh, see many people argue about the importance of cultural factors. Uh, so you would hear, for example, ideas that it is the difference between Protestant or Catholic, as Max Weber argued, or perhaps between uh, Christian or Muslim or Judeo-Christian or Muslim or, or Asian values, non-Asian values, uh, or uh, the problems with uh, 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 African uh, attitudes to work. Uh, it is a popular explanation to try to uh, account for the differences between North America and Latin America with sort of an Iberian culture. Uh, but, uh, but those seem to have relatively little explanatory power also. Uh, it was only about four decades ago that many scholars were talking about the deleterious effects of the Confucius, uh, Confucius values and the Chinese cultural traits that are now touted as uh, the great foundation on which the Chinese growth experience is built. And of course, uh, uh, what has changed dramatically since then are the economic institutions under which uh, the, uh, the majority of the Chinese are making their economic decisions. Perhaps even more popular in academic circles, certainly among many of my colleagues, would be a different theory, uh, and perhaps uh, also very popular among journalists. And it, the, the theory would go along the following lines that, you know, what matters is enlightened leadership. And here, enlightened leadership would mean that either leaders have uh, the right idea about what to do, or perhaps they get the right advice. And it's no surprise that this has sort of some appeal to economists, because we are in the business of trying to work out what are the good policies. And we think that we are very important, and we are so instrumental in making the right macroeconomic or the microeconomic policies. But as I will argue in a second, uh, while economic policies, as Ian mentioned, uh, that condemn nations to poverty abound, those wrong policies are not adopted by mistake. They are adopted often by design. It is not in the ignorance of leaders that we should look for the causes of poverty, but it is in their incentives. So our theory, as again Ian mentioned, is about institutions. And it, it is about politics. So let me try to explain what I mean by that, and I'll try to illustrate this with a couple of examples. Uh, so by institutions, I mean the rules, formal and informal, that govern economic life. And also, I will talk about the rules and uh, regulations that are important in the political life. So it should be no surprise to many of you that there are certain sets of economic institutions, such as proper, secure property rights, contract enforcements, and so on, that crea create investment incentives and incentives for innovation. And equally also, economic institutions that create a level playing field so that a nation can best deploy its talent, uh, the talent that's broadly distributed within society. To such institutions, we refer as inclusive economic institutions. Inclusive economic institutions, however, are the exception throughout history and even today throughout the world. Instead, many nations today and in the past have been ruled by what we call extractive institutions. So extractive institutions don't respect property rights. They don't create law and order. They don't create a secure contract environment. They don't reward innovation. And they certainly do not create a level playing field blocking the entry of new entrants, not pre providing opportunity to uh, acquire education or use the talent to the vast majority of the population. And such extractive institutions do not encourage sustained economic growth. But these extractive institutions are not there by mistake, as I have already hinted at, and the title, the, the, the term extractive institutions already sort of gives you an idea. They are designed 
by the politically powerful to extract resources from the mass of society for the benefit of the few. Such extractive economic institutions are in turn sustained by extractive political institutions which concentrate political power in the hands of an elite and it is that elite which designs, maintains and benefits from these institutions. So the question is why these extractive institutions emerge and persist and that's where the politics comes in. It is the extractive political institutions that concentrate political power and the groups that monopolize political power can maintain these institutions even though they don't create incentives for economic growth. So what I would like to do then is to go through an example to illustrate what I mean by this, uh, to give you a, set, a context of how these extractive institutions emerge, how they persist, and then also link that to some of the other themes of the book uh, briefly before I pass it on to Carla for comments and uh, open, the, uh, open it for the floor discussion. I think there is no better laboratory than the New World, the Americas, for understanding how different institutions have formed, how they have been supported by different political systems, different distributions of political power, and how that has led to a huge economic divergence. After all, the economic and political institutions in the New World have been largely shaped by their colonization experience, starting at the, uh, at the beginning of the 16th century. And of course, uh, the, the tales of Pizarro and Cortes are, are quite familiar, but let me start from another one of the conquistadors with the uh, Solis, who uh, around 1516 uh, started the colonization of the southern cone of, uh, of the South America, what is today Argentina and Uruguay. Uh, under the Solis' uh, leadership, uh, they also founded the city of Buenos Aires. So those are areas that we now think are very attractive. Buenos Aires, good airs is the sort of climate that Europeans are used to. The, around Buenos Aires, both in Argentina and Uruguay, are very fertile lands that then became the basis of uh, almost a century of uh, uh, a very high income per capita in Argentina because of the productivity of these areas. But actually the, uh, the colonization of this area was a total failure. It was a total failure because the Spaniards arrived there with a given model of colonization. And their model of colonization was get the gold, get the silver, and most importantly capture and enslave Indians so that they would mine the gold and the silver and they would produce food for us and they would produce uh, other commodities for sale. So what the first thing that they wanted to do was to uh, find the Indians and capture them. Unfortunately, from their point of view, the uh, native population of the area, the Charuas and the Querandi, were hunter-gatherers, very sparsely settled, very mobile, and without as much of the hierarchy that then they were later to encounter in other parts of Latin America. So the Spaniards tried to capture them. They fought back. Uh, they quickly clubbed the Solis to death, so that the Solis wasn't one of the uh, famous conquistadors that went on the history books. Uh, but more importantly, they, would, uh, they were not I mean, enough of them, and they, wouldn't, they would refuse to work uh, when captured, the Spaniards starved, and as starvation set in, many of them died, and the remainder said, forget about this place, and they move up the Parana River to what is today Asuncion, Paraguay. There they encountered another band of Indians, which, you know, on the surface looks a little similar to the Querandi and the Cheruas, the Guarani. But the Guarani were a little different. They were already a little more settled. They were more densely settled, uh, the, the, so there was a denser population density. And also they already had established a hierarchical society with their princes and princesses and their own elite and the rest of the population working for the benefit of the elite. So the conquistadors immediately took over that hierarchy. They set themselves up as the elite. They married some of the princesses and they put the Guarani to work to produce foodstuff for them. They didn't starve in Paraguay. Then that was a very successful colony that survived for many centuries. And the sort of institutions that they established in the Guarani were the sorts of institutions that they established in other parts of Latin America uh, and after the conquest of the Aztecs and the Inca. There were institutions such as encomienda, repartimiento, trajín, mita, uh, essentially forced labor institutions. Uh, people would be, uh, the Indians would be assigned with land grants to the Spaniards or to the elite that they created. People would be forced to work whatever wage that were, they were offered. Uh, they were under constant coercive pressure. They were, the repartimiento is that not only they were forced to work, but they were also forced to buy whatever their elites sold them. Uh, the mita was a forced labor system for them to produce uh, uh, silver, for example, in the Potosi mine, and so on and so forth. And it's no surprise that those sorts of economic institutions did not encourage economic growth. And it's also no surprise that the political institutions that were the basis of this 
persisted and created and kept recreating elites that did not encourage economic development in Latin America. Now, of course, you can say, well, the big difference perhaps there was the model of colonization of the Spaniards, perhaps the values that the Spaniards brought, perhaps the religion that they brought, or, and so on and so forth. But actually, when we turn to the colonization of North America, we see that it wasn't these factors that were important. So again, starting at the early stages of that colonization, we can start at the beginning of the 17th century with the Jamestown colony in Virginia that the Virginia Company set up. Uh, the uh, model of the Virginia Company and, uh, and the elite uh, captains and, uh, and, uh, and, the, and the aristocrats that they sent to, uh, to North America were actually remarkably similar to the model of colonization of the conquistadors. They also wanted gold, and they also thought that they would actually be able to uh, capture and enslave Indians and put them to work. And Unfortunately for them, they encountered very similar situations to those in Argentina and Uruguay that De Solis and his men encountered. So the Indians were again very, very sparsely settled. They were very mobile and not willing to work, not willing to provide food for them. And very similarly, they also went through the starving time, uh, only surviving perhaps uh, thanks to the ingenuity of John Smith and some of the other uh, few people on, uh, on, uh, on, on, the, on the early stages of the colony. So, but while the Spaniards had the option of moving up the Parana River and finding another more densely settled and hierarchical society to take over, the uh, captains of the Virginia uh, uh, Company didn't have that option because no such civilization existed in any of the neighborhoods, in any of the areas that they were, they were conquering. So they came up with a second strategy. The second strategy was, okay, we cannot enslave and the, the Indians to put them to work for us. Well, we can bring our own uh, lower strata of society. So they brought the indentured servants from England so that they would be the elite and the indentured servants would do the production and, uh, and uh, would, uh, would be the, the bottom of society. And just to give you a sense of this, let me just uh, quote directly from the laws that uh, the, uh, the, the governor of the colony at the time, Sir Thomas Gates, and his deputy, Sir Thomas Dale, passed. So this laws go, for example, in one section, no man or woman shall run away from the colony to the Indians upon pain of death. Anyone who robs a garden, public or private, or a vineyard, or who steals ears of corn shall be punished with death. No member of the colony will sell or give any commodity of this country to a captain, mariner, master, or sailor to transport out of the colony or for his own private use upon pain of death. So when you read these laws, you realize two things. This was not a sort of a happy democratic colony that they were founding uh, based on uh, uniquely English or British values. The second thing is that there were actually real problems that they were worried about. And the real problem that they were worried about was that it was very difficult to keep these settlers that they brought as the lower strata of the society to do the production, to do the production and not run away or not engage in trade out of their own production. So they fought against this for a couple more years, but at the end they decided there's no chance, there's no way. Whatever we threaten to do, we're not going to be able to keep them doing what we want. So finally they came up with a third strategy. And their third strategy was a very radical and a very different one. They said, why don't we give these settlers economic incentives? Not because that was better for them, but that was because that was the only option left for them. So they came up with the headright system where each settler would be given uh, land and they would do their own production and they would, be, they would have secure property rights. But there was one, only one problem. So there was Sir Thomas Gale, uh, Gates and Sir Thomas Dale just six months ago threatening to kill you because you were trading with a sailor uh, or you, so you, so you took one ear of corn. How could you trust them when they tell you that you have secure property rights? There's a problem there. So that problem showed itself in the next year when they couldn't resist taking the next step, but to make the economic incentives credible, now they had to give them political rights as well. So the General Assembly followed in 1619, uh, one year after the head rights system, and now through the General Assembly, these settlers were no longer the lower strata of the society, but they were going to make their own decisions through more inclusive political institutions. So I think what this... Uh, episode, uh, what this uh, historical example illustrates is, a, is several ideas that are important. The first one is the complementarity or the feedback effects between inclusive economic and political institutions. Inclusive economic institutions do need inclusive political institutions. They're, it's going to be very difficult for them to survive under extractive political institutions. And likewise, extractive economic institutions need extractive political institutions and vice versa. The sort of economic institutions like the Encobienda Trajin Repartimiento would not have been possible if the uh, 
Spaniards had set up a democratic system in which the native Indians uh, or the native populations would actually have political rights. The second important idea is that none of these theories that I've talked about as the alternative theories really have much explanatory power in this instance. Uh, it wasn't because the geography had any important effect. If anything, as I've already indicated, uh, the already existing and more developed civilizations were the ones that ended up with the worst set of institutions because that's where the population was and that's where the extractive institutions were feasible and more profitable for the Spanish conquistadors. It had nothing to do with values or, uh, or, 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 or culture that the, the colonizers had because the model of colonization and what they wanted to do was very similar. It didn't matter whether they were Spanish or, 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 or English. They were after the goal and they were after enslaving the populations they wanted to capture. And enlightened leadership had nothing to do with it either because they didn't have different ideas about what they wanted to do. Sir Thomas Gales and Sir Thomas Dale would have loved to do what the Ayolas, uh, the person who's founded the Asuncion colony or the Toledo who did the Potosi mines had done and set up those extractive systems. They just couldn't do it. So it wasn't about enlightened leadership. It was about failed leadership in North America. So those really highlight the sort of uh, ideas that, uh, that are really at the center of the book because they show both why inclusive and extractive economic institutions are important and why inclusive and extractive economic institutions in turn are based on inclusive and extractive political institutions, so the political process that underpins this. But I would like to say a few other things before uh, I pass the floor uh, to, to Carla. Uh, so the first one is, is about why it is that a extractive political institutions are so inconsistent with economic growth. After all, you can think about uh, you can think about you know a dictator or an elite who controls political power completely, but then wants to encourage economic growth so that it can become the beneficiary of it. And in fact, we have seen examples of this in history, that there are examples we discussed in the book of extractive growth. But we argue that that's not going to be sustained economic growth. And there are two reasons for this, simplifying it a little bit. But those two reasons are related to uh, economic rents and political power. The one related to economic rents is that, as uh, Joseph Schumpeter uh, long ago emphasized, economic growth, especially sustained economic growth, needs to be based on innovation. And that innovation will come with creative destruction. Creative destruction brings new replacing the old, brings new people replacing the old, brings new technologies replacing the old. But the elite are generally vested in the old technologies. They're the old people. They are the old firms. And they're going to be the economic losers out of that process. That's the most important, that's the one important channel. But the most important one, or the more important one, is actually a political channel. Uh, the elite is also afraid that the same process of creative destruction will destroy their political power. So to illustrate that, let me go a little bit further in time and uh, sort of uh, developing the argument that this is not just about the 16th century, 17th century. So I'll talk a little bit about the 19th century, and then I'll talk a little bit about the 20th century. So the 19th century was, of course, the time of the Industrial Revolution. You know, the sort of growth rates that we are experiencing today around the world are, uh, were unseen before the 1800s. Uh, and the Industrial Revolution itself, of course, was the outcome of another political transformation that took place in England in the 17th century with the English Civil War and then the Glorious Revolution that changed the nature of political power and then continued with the democratization in England throughout the 19th century. That political transformation opened the way to much more inclusive economic institutions, and those unleashed a great economic potential. But the Industrial Revolution wasn't greeted with open arms around the world. While railroads and new factories were springing up in many parts of Europe in North America, uh, many other parts of Europe were staunchly resisted to it. So here we see an example of extractive institutions that not only, dis not only fail to encourage economic growth, it's not only that they don't provide property rights or secure contracts so that economic growth can flourish, but actually leaders and elites actively blocking economic development. And that took place in places such as the Austria-Hungarian Empire under Francis I or the Russian Empire under Nicholas I. And both of these emperors and their elites 
uh, went so far as banning the introduction of railways, banning the introduction of new technologies in textiles and other fields. And their arguments throughout wasn't about economics. Their arguments throughout was about politics. They thought that new technologies would destabilize power, railways would lead to the congregation of the masses and would generate more organized demand against their rule. And when it was a choice between allowing economic growth and potential destabilization of their power, it was clear how they were going to choose. So that was the source of the blocking of economic development. And it's no surprise that when you have extractive economic institutions uh, that enrich a particular group that is already able to monopolize political power, and uh, that group, those groups are going to be able to persist in power and maintain power for extended periods of time. And we see other examples of uh, extractive economic institutions uh, blocking economic, uh, uh, preventing economic development. I think the one that I would like to mention, you know, bringing it a little bit more to the present, is uh, you know a couple that I would like to quickly mention. I mean, you can we can obviously pick uh, extreme examples such as North Korea. North Korea is a is a you know uh, obvious case of how insecure property rights and uh, in, in fact, entire absence of property rights has been extremely detrimental, starting from the same conditions as South Korea. North Korea is about one-tenth or less than one-tenth of the income level of South Korea today. But, but the sort of extreme lack of property, uh, private property is not the only form that, uh, that extractive institutions take. I think one that's extractive in this context is, for instance, the economic institutions that South Africa set up until they were overthrown with the, apart- the collapse of the apartheid regime. And those economic institutions highlight that it's not only property rights that for the elite that you need, but you need much more broad-based property rights and you need much more broad-based level playing field. What were the economic institutions that really retarded economic growth in South Africa? You know, when we look at it, we see not only, you know, very unequal distribution of economic outcomes, we see very unequal distribution of economic opportunities. Essentially, uh, over 80% of the population, which were African, were not allowed to, uh, not given proper property rights in their land. The land was designed to have communal property rights as a way of forcing the African population to work as cheap labor for the uh, white minority-owned mines and other businesses. But that wasn't, all, that wasn't all. More important than that, perhaps, were institutions such as the color bar, which meant that uh, essentially almost any skilled occupation from the very low skill to the medium skill, all sorts of crafts were entirely closed for the African Americans. So in the, in the words of the designers of that system, there was no place in the European economy, as they called it, for the African. And as a result, the Africans, the only sort of options open to them, and partly also because they could not get any sort of decent education, was to work as cheap laborers. What happened as a result was that South Africa was able to have some growth over, uh, over the period of the apartheid economy, but very limited one and based on resources. But throughout that period, black wages, for example, were stagnant or declining. So that sort of institutions that uh, either don't create uh, incentives for, uh, for investment or innovation or absolutely fail to create a level playing field are very inimical to long-term economic growth, and unfortunately, they are still around us. So what I would like to do then is to end with a very brief discussion of, if, uh, of how the process of economic growth takes place finally when extractive institutions make way for inclusive economic and political institutions. I think there, what I would like to say is very brief. There's a much more detailed discussion in the book. But given the emphasis that I have already placed on the importance of political factors, it should be no surprise that a uh, a conclusive transition to inclusive institutions requires really a political transformation. And unfortunately, such political transformations are quite rare. They are quite rare for two reasons. One, because they will not come voluntarily from the elite because the elite will suddenly decide that they want to change a system that has served them well. So it will come only when there are real demands on the system. Uh, 
And second, because many of these demands on the system will not be accepted peacefully by the elite. So when we look at the history of the inclusive institutions, uh, how the emergence of inclusive institutions, we see that in almost all cases they come from a sort of pressure from the people who have been excluded from the power who have been disenfranchised. So in the case of the uh, North American colonies, for example, it came where people walking away from the colony making demands. In the case of Australia, it came again through protests. In the case of England, in the case of France, it came through people going and forming social movements. In many of these cases, in some of these cases, it, uh, when such demands uh, were articulated politically and economically, the elite gave in. They didn't see any way out without uh, creating a somewhat more inclusive society as a concession to these demands. And so as a result, in England, for example, we had a process of gradual enfranchisement of the middle class and then the working classes and then women throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. But as the recent evidence, as the recent experience with the Arab Spring makes it clear, the such concession in the face of social movements and grassroots demands is not the only option. When the same sort of demands were finally articulated in Tunisia, uh, the elite first dragged its feet and then Ben Ali went and, uh, and Tunisia recently had uh, uh, fairly democratic elections. In Egypt, there was more of a feet dragging. Security services uh, were, uh, were used briefly as, uh, as a way of repressing the uprising in Tahrir Square. But finally, the military sort of decided that there was no way that they could, uh, they could hang on to power under the existing system, and they engineered a more smooth transition by uh, getting rid of Mubarak and some of his cronies. But in Syria, as we are witnessing right now, and in Libya, the outcome has been very different. There, the elite decided that they would rather take the risk of a violent clash rather than give up their rents. And unfortunately, when there are such resistance from the elite against uh, demands that have been articulated, the outcome is first going to be not as nice and peaceful as the gradual transitions in Britain or the one in Tunisia. But, and secondly, unfortunately, such uh, political transformations have a way of bringing in a new extractive regime because uh, the sort of instability and violence that uh, results from such clashes often creates room for uh, new strong men to try to take control of the extractive institutions. So we have seen, for instance, in the context of the Russian uh, the, uh, uh, experience that I started with, when finally, after the defeat in the Crimean War, uh, uh, Alexander II decided that it was time for Russia to industrialize, the fears of uh, uh, the, uh, the previous uh, generation were all realized, and Russia did go through, through, through instability, that exactly the same sort of thing that Nikolai I was afraid. But that sort of instability lead, led to a revolution, but that revolution destroyed the existing regime, but brought an even worse regime in its place. So therefore, the process of extractive institutions transforming themselves into inclusive institutions is not a smooth one, and it comes with lots of pitfalls on the way. And that's why... Uh, while there is uh, room for being optimistic that, for instance, the movement that started with the Arab Spring uh, in the Middle East and North Africa and other parts of the world is a move towards inclusive institutions, we cannot rule out the possibility that on the way, or for perhaps very long periods of time, it may actually lead to more problematic, more extractive, or more repressive regimes. And that really brings me back to the points that Ian made at the beginning, that I think it is quite easy to understand what sort of outcomes you want, investment, innovation, and level playing field. It's even not that difficult to see what sorts of economic institutions would underpin those. Secure property rights, good contracts, good justice system, a level playing field, a good education system, public services for the majority of the population. But it is very difficult to see how we go from here to there because the, the process of the political transformation that is necessary for that is a very treacherous one. And I think that requires both more thinking and more research, something that I'm sure people in this room will have ideas to contribute to. So I'll just stop there and pass it to Carla. Thanks very much. Uh, I'm pleased to introduce our next speaker, who is uh, Dr. Carla Hoff, who is a senior research economist at the World Bank. She has taught at the University of Pennsylvania, Princeton, 
the School of Advanced International Studies at uh, Johns Hopkins, and the University of Maryland. Her research is in the areas of economic development and behavioral economics. She received her PhD in economics from Princeton, has edited a couple of books on development economics, and her latest research analyzes the problem of endogenous preferences, trying to understand ways that institutions shape not only the rules of the game, but also people's perceptions, interpretations, and aspirations. She has run experiments in India on the impact of culture on coordinate, coordination, cooperation, and learning. Please help me welcome Dr. Hoff. This is advancing? Yes, I believe so. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Ian, and I'm very happy to be here. I come to praise Duran Estimoglu's uh, very entertaining new book, which I have been reading for the last uh, t 20 hours in more or less the same <laughs> chair uh, at the same desk in front of the same window. Um, but it was really worth it. Every time I thought I could skip, I thought, no, I want to hear what's going to happen to him, and I want to hear what's going to happen to the next guy. Uh, so this is uh, really a very unusual book for um, a high-powered theorist to have um, uh, been a co-author for. It, it almost feels like fiction, except that um, I'm quite confident he didn't make it up. Um, so uh, as I say, I can't come to praise and to ask a few questions. Um, so let me start with, um, you know, just a perspective on the book. It really summarizes exactly the same things that Drone did, but um, because I have slides and he doesn't, it puts it in a slightly different uh, mold. So let me start out with a perspective that certainly is assumed in economics and uh, has effectively been proven um, to, to hold under ideal conditions. And that's what I call a heroic view of man. So the heroic view of man is, is a simple um, statement that if you put a population in a field with secure property rights and public services that provide broad access to markets, you will get growth, innovation, and this is exactly what's happened since 1750. So it's not that you need to wait for Copernicus. It's not that you need to wait um, you know, for Thomas Edison. Um, in any normal population, uh, under good conditions, you will get a flow of invention. And, and that really has been proven. Um, but some societies squelch the heroic in man. Uh, and this is a figure from one of Duron's um, early working papers. It shows um, a measure of income, uh, a proxy for income, namely urbanization rates, uh, which is a very good proxy for per capita income. Uh, we don't have per capita income series going back to 1750. So on the um, horizontal axis, you see um, dates, 1750 to 1930, uh, which was, of course, not exactly a good year for the US. Um, and um, the vertical axis is this proxy for income. And uh, I didn't want to put all the countries up because it gets hard to read. So just as Jerome focused uh, the first part of his talk on the Americas, here I'm picking up four countries in the Americas. And you can see that in 1750, there was no reason to uh, choose uh, the US over Peru, um, uh, nor Brazil, nor Mexico. Everyone was in the same boat. Uh, incomes were very low. Urbanization was very low. But 1750, of course, is not just any old date. 1750 is um, a standard marker for the Industrial Revolution. And it was at that point that the US took off. And there was absolutely no response to the new opportunities in the extractive societies, the societies of Peru, Mexico, and Brazil, with both um, extractive and um, extractive political and economic institutions. So the heroic in man was squelched. And then the question is, why? So this, again, is just picking up exactly what Drone did, but it's, it's giving you a pie. You have two pies to choose from. So you could have a really fat share of a little pie, or you could have a very small share of a big pie. And um, if the fat share of the small pie is bigger, you might prefer that. And um, so the explanation that uh, Drone offers and that builds on, of course, earlier work and that he persuades 
uh, as of by running all over the world in, and giving us very nice stories of horrible people all over the world is that um, the uh, extractive political institutions that the elite uh, like to create prevents growth. The 1% may maximize its share of the pie, but not the size of the whole pie. Not only will um, the elite perhaps get a smaller share if it opens up society, opens up monopolies, um, opens up the suffrage, but the elite today may not be the elite tomorrow. So they may not be on the graph at all. Uh, definitely not a desirable outcome from their perspective. So here's what can happen to an inventor in an extractive state. So here I'm just elaborating on uh, Duron's idea that um, uh, invention is not at all encouraged in extractive institutions if uh, it's viewed as a threat. And generally, narrow elites are very uh, fearful, very easy, easily made to feel threatened. So these are quotes from various parts of Duron and Jim's book. When a man invents unbreakable glass and goes to Emperor Tiberius, anticipating a great reward, the emperor has him dragged away and killed. Let gold be reduced to the value of mud. So let that be a warning to you. To protect the regime from perceived threats to its monopoly of power, the emperor, um, and here I'm in China. You see the different dots. Um, I'm in China now. The emperor of China orders all people living along the southern coast to move 17 miles inland. Not a good way to benefit from gains from trade. Um, now I'm in England in 1589. The inventor of a knitting machine seeks a patent from Elizabeth I and later her successor, James I. Both refuse. The mechanization of stocking production promises creative destruction. Not good for royal power. Now in Germany, 1705. The inventor of the world's first steamboat, with a great name, the Steam Digester, takes his boat down the river Fulda. Also, I think, a great name. <laughs> Traffic on the river is the monopoly of a guild of boatmen. The boatmen smash his boat and steam engine to pieces. The inventor dies a pauper. Finally, the Empress Maria Theresa, this is in um, uh, Austria-Hungary, the Habsburg Empire, frequently responds to suggestions about how to improve institutions by, um, by remarking, leave everything as it is. After all, if you're on top and have more than enough resources, you don't want change. So this is just a, uh, gives you a flavor of the remarkable um, journey. Really, you're, you're, jet, you're jetting all over the world uh, every five or 10 pages in um, Asmoglu's book. Now, here's what can happen to infrastructure. Well, we're not going to have time for that, so I'm going to move beyond that. Um, here's what can happen to markets. Okay, um, Monopoly, monopoly everywhere. Um, Groups who compete with their powerful within a country, across countries, or during colonialism are wiped out and enslaved. And I think one of the points that is very, very good in, in Duran Jim's book and that he didn't have time to mention is, um, I think, the wake-up call for people uh, who say, oh, it's the culture or it's the geography in um, Egypt and, let's say, Southeast Asia that explains their poverty. Um, the stories are truly adults only. They're truly blood-curdling of how good institutions were subverted or, if that wasn't possible, entire populations killed in order that inst extractive institutions could be installed. So, I mean, I think that is one really um, important contribution of their work to make more clear um, some of the causes of the divergence you see today. Okay, so I'm almost done. Don't get worried, Ian. <laughs> Um, do I have three minutes? Yes, or? you have time. I have three minutes, okay. So, so we understand, I think, why uh, some places remain poor. They don't encourage invention, and if by mistake you should invent anything, well, God forbid the fate, okay? God forbid the fate that should uh, befall you. Um, but how do we get rich? Well, the basic story is that the degree of inequality in power and wealth, for example, low inequality once Jamestown adopted its strategy number three, or high inequality once the um, Spanish uh, conquistadors in Uruguay that Duran was describing adopted strategy number two. Whatever that inequality of power and wealth is uh, contributes to a certain set of institutions that entail, for example, land policy, suffrage, public support or not for education, 
banking laws, patent laws, agrarian institutions. And that determines the breadth of the population with opportunities for economic advancement. Maybe it's only the 1%, maybe it's everybody, maybe something in between. And that, in turn, determines prosperity or poverty. And there's a feedback effect. So as Joan emphasized, what's really important about understanding divergence is that once you get into a situation of high inequality politically, it's very difficult to support good institutions because the people who would benefit from them don't have the resources, don't have the wealth to make their voices heard in the political process. So you have a um, vicious cycle and a virtuous cycle. And um, the book is very good at describing both. So this is the last. This is to conclude. I have three questions. Um, the, pay, the book you know, answers many questions, but uh, doesn't answer every question. Um, so here are three uh, that it doesn't answer. Why 1750? Why did the Industrial Revolution begin in 1750? We know they had good institutions then, but you know they had good institutions somewhat before then, too, certainly by 1688. Um, economists are not sure why the Industrial Revolution began in 1750. There was no big change in property rights, no big change in labor scarcity. Um, Joel Mokir, um, who is mentioned many times um, in the book, uh, believes in an idealist explanation. He, um, he writes, the social capability by the mid-18th century to punish dishonest behavior helped elevate Britain to the leading position in the Industrial Revolution. So he's talking about norms, taboos against cheating, the notion that anyone can be a gentleman, but a gentleman is somebody who doesn't cheat his business partners. So Joel Mokir writes, entrepreneurial success was based on successful cooperation between individuals who had good reason to think they could trust one another. Opportunistic behavior was made so taboo that in only a few cases was it necessary to use the formal institutions to punish deviants. So the idea in Mokir is that we had good science before 1750, and we had good institutions, like uh, banking institutions, but you didn't get the inventors to team up with the financiers. And what happened in 1750 was that they did team up. No one is a multifaceted geniuses. Few, among, you know, few, few enough are geniuses at all. But if you have some guy who's great at inventing, and another guy who's great at marketing, and another guy who has wealth or access to credit markets, then you team them up, and then you, can, then you can change the world. So it was really cooperation. And it wasn't that you had either informal or formal institutions that you know, made it possible to enforce all these contracts, but rather um, you, you had norms um, and you know, gossiping in all these gentlemen's clubs uh, and so on to keep, to keep people honest. <laughs> so that, that is an idealist explanation. And, um, um, you know, it contrasts a bit with the materialist explanation that's emphasized in the book. But as I note here in um, his youth, um, which of course is not very long ago for Deron, um, he wrote on um, norms and how they can be perpetuated. He wrote about the mafia and so on um, in his PhD thesis that came out in 93 as the reward structures and allocation of talent. But I didn't see that much of um, that in this book. I suppose five or 600 pages is a long enough book, but I still think he should have put it in. Um, institutions include a founding analogy. Institutions are not just rules and not just norms, but they're sort of mental templates of the world. One example, divine rule. Another example, white supremacy. Another example, caste. Oh, there's an E missing there. Indian caste, a species created by God. Um, or you know, the, 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 you know the, the, the template that in America we, we, we try to endorse, man is, all men is entitled to uh, the pursuit of happiness. So these, these founding analogies, these metaphors sort of shape how you look at the world, and therefore they shape what is possible in terms of collective action, in terms of the formation of groups that would contest um, a, a highly extractive set of institutions. And one way to look at that is, um, as a metaphor, I like to make two um, visual illusions. Mm -hmm. So this is the optical illusion. A and B are two squares. I ask you to look at those two squares and uh, just think to yourself whether they're the same color or not. OK? Do you see the two squares? 
Now I'd like to show you that they're the same color. There's A. There's B. See, they're the same. But they don't look the same when they're sitting in a checkerboard, and that's a framing effect. And I, and I argue in, um, in, in some of my recent work that institutions are like framing effects. So this is my last slide, Ian. Uh, <laughs> um, this is my last question. So one question was, well, why 1750? You know, maybe ideas are important. Maybe we should think about um, uh, one of the factors in vicious and um, uh, virtu uh, virtuous circles as arising from um, ideas. And then my last question is, to, to bring, um, to bring uh, Duran and Jim's book up to the very present, we know that one of the big changes in the world is globalization. Um, now, the, all but the first column of, of this slide is exactly what you saw earlier, um, the nexus between inequality and institutions, breadth of access to opportunities, and then prosperity. But now I'm adding one more on the left side, labor scarcity. Labor scarcity is something that that's changes very rapidly with globalization. Um, there may be only so many auto workers in Michigan and so many textile workers in Tennessee, but boy, if you can go to China or if you can go to India, there are lots of textile workers or lots of people to put your cars together. And so that means that labor is no longer as scarce. And that means that unions don't have as much power, or unions might not exist at all. And then you might not have people who could um, fight for, let's say, access to opportunity to higher education, or fight for uh, fair labor laws, um, who have organization and who have resources and who can be participants in the debate. So that might have ultimately an effect on you know, how much power the top 1% has and how much uh, wealth the 1% gets, and which in turn might affect ultimately the um, opportunities for upward mobility and the um, prosperity of the country. So I think the um, notion of extractive and inclusive institutions is, you know, as Duron and Jim would be the first to say, not just a bipolar world, but it's a continuum. And changes in inequality can affect where you are in that continuum. And societies are constantly changing. And um, I think he, he gives us an inspiring framework to help organize a very, very complicated world. Um, uh, my last pitch will be that you all read the book. I learned a million things in the book. My favorite part was finally understanding why it is, or at least a very plausible reason why it is, that Eastern Europe, in response to the Black Death, which produced incredible labor scarcity, because, hey, half the population drops dead, why Eastern Europe became more feudal and Western Europe became less feudal. But just as any um, uh, good book review doesn't tell you, in the novel at least, what ends and whether the girl gets the boy, I won't reveal <laughs> the secret to that story to encourage you to get the book. Thank you.